Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. We are in a section of the Gospel of Mark that deals with discipleship. As Jesus has announced that he is going to suffer and die, this has huge ramifications for those who were his followers. And the path of the cross, we find out, is not just a pathway for Jesus to walk, but it is also the pathway that the disciples of Jesus Christ are called to walk, even as we are called to walk that path today. In Mark chapter 10, we come to a sensitive issue in our culture, the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on the subject of divorce. We're going to be looking into Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. The title for this morning's message is Jesus on Divorce. Now, as we go through this passage, you will find that in order to understand divorce, it's first important that we understand what marriage is. Marriage is not a social contract that has been invented by mankind. It's, it's not just a societal norm with ethics that have grown out of an evolutionary concept of human relations. No, marriage is a creation of God. And it is a holy creation of God that is very, very important. And so Jesus here is going to give us teaching that is going to be the guidance that Christ wants the church of Jesus Christ to live according to. We're not gathered here this morning to hear the opinions of Timothy. Nobody cares what Timothy thinks about divorce. We are gathered here to listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you of one of the key verses we've looked at recently in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 7, as you see. As Jesus was transfigured before the disciples, a cloud of glory enveloped the mountain. And the voice of the Father came from the cloud and said, This, Jesus, is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So I want you to listen to the words of Jesus Christ this morning, for you will all, each and every one of you, be held accountable for how you listen. Be careful how you listen. Don't think, well, Timothy, that's just your interpretation. We're not here for any private interpretation. You are here to hear the words of Jesus Christ, and I am here to speak the words of Jesus Christ, and may God give us the power and the strength to do just that. Jesus Christ came as a teacher. We see that in the opening verse. Let's read verses 1 and 2 in Mark chapter 10. You're going to see that our outline this morning divides into three parts. The first two verses are the setting and the question on divorce. Then we see Jesus' answer in verses 3 through 9, as well as some further questions from the disciples and Jesus' words there in verses 10 through 12 that clarify what he said in verses 3 through 9. So let's start by reading the first two verses. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up. And in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So that gives us the setting, that introduces the question. As we look at the setting of this section on teaching on divorce, we see that Jesus left there. And where is there? Well, you read back in chapter 9, and the last place we saw Jesus was in Capernaum. He had come back from the mountain of transfiguration. He had some time of teaching there in private in Capernaum. And then moving south from the mountain of transfiguration through Galilee, now he's coming down into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. 
And Jesus is making this movement because it is about time for him to depart from this world. That's what he was discussing with Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus came for a purpose, and that was to lay down his life as a ransom for sin. And so now that time is approaching, and he's moving towards his final ministry there in Jerusalem. Luke puts it this way in his part of the gospel that corresponds. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So that's the direction they are moving. And as he goes, not surprisingly, a crowd gathers around him, as has been the case throughout the Gospel of Mark. And as has been the case throughout the Gospel of Mark, the response of Jesus to a gathering crowd is to teach them. Jesus has come as a teacher. And so this corresponds with what we just were reminded of. Listen to him. We need to listen to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, as he's teaching them, the Pharisees come up with a question that is designed to test him. Now, when it says that they are testing the Lord Jesus, what that means is, is that they were not coming to Jesus out of respect for his opinion and wanting to be receiving instruction about how to think about this. They're not having that kind of submissive attitude to the Lord's teaching at all. No, the reason why they're asking this question is because they think that they might be able to use Jesus' answer against him in some way. That the political opposition, the spiritual, religious, political opposition, has already been set against Jesus, and they're not interested in receiving instruction from him personally. The only reason they ask questions is the same reason a hostile reporter asks politicians a question. He's hoping to be able to use the politician's words against him. And so why did they ask this particular question? What did the Pharisees hope to accomplish by getting Jesus to publicly state his position on divorce? Well, there's two possibilities that arise. The first one is that the Pharisees recognized that the position that Jesus had already taught on this subject was not popular. Anytime somebody has a position that is out of the mainstream, well, then the hostile reporter likes to ask questions about that because they're hoping to show the person as some kind of extremist, somebody who doesn't really fit in with the mainstream. And we find that Jesus' position on divorce is a rather extreme position in comparison with what Judaism at the time taught. How do we know that? Well, we have the Mishnah, which records for us what were the prevailing views among the Jews on divorce at this time. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But the second way they might have been able to use his answer to this question against him was that Jesus was traveling in the region beyond the Jordan, as it says. And do you know who ruled in Perea, the region beyond the Jordan? Well, Herod Antipas ruled there. And what did Herod Antipas do to John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus Christ? That's right. He executed him. He had his head cut off. And why did Herod Antipas have John the Baptist arrested in the first place? Well, it was because John the Baptist had spoken against the marriage, the second marriage, the remarriage, the unlawful marriage of Herod to his brother's wife. So he'd married his brother's wife after she had divorced his brother. It was wrong on many different counts. And John had spoken against it, and this had gotten John imprisoned and ultimately beheaded. And so maybe they were hoping that this same fate might befall Jesus. That's probably what is going on in their minds as they test him with the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So, Jesus' answer in verses 3 through 9. 
What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the public response of the Lord Jesus Christ to this hostile question that is coming at him. Now, if they were asking him this question because his position was extreme, well, his answer was exactly what they were looking for. If they were asking him this question in order to try to get him in trouble with Herod Antipas, well, then he's played right into their hands because this is something that they could go back to Herod with and that Herod would not be pleased with Jesus' answer. And so what we learn from this is that Jesus thinks this question is important enough that he's willing to suffer the hostility of the Pharisees and to give a plain public answer on the question of divorce. I admire Jesus' courage. I admire his straightforward attitude on this, that he values marriage to such an extent that he is willing to fall into their trap. He doesn't count his life as dear to him, but instead he is a man who will stand on what he knows is the truth from God's word. But before Jesus gives his answer, he answers their question with a question. Notice back in verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? Answering a question with a question is often a wise tactic. We see the Lord Jesus Christ doing this. We see other wise people doing this. And so we have to stop and think for a moment. Why did Jesus ask them this question? Why didn't he just give the answer right away? And I think that when you ask a question in response to a question, not only are you asking for a clarification, because the way they answer the question that you ask is going to give you some insight into how you should answer, but it's also testing the questioner. And I think that Jesus here is testing the Pharisees to see, as he expects, Will they seize on a command in Deuteronomy chapter 24 about divorce? Or will they go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to God's original design for marriage? That's what Jesus is going to do. But I think the Pharisees fail the test here because they go back when they are asked, what did Moses command? Not to God's design for marriage, but to one commandment back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24 is where the Pharisees quote from in response to Jesus in verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they revealed their position. They're willing to do that. And then Jesus responds to their position. Now, as I said, we have recorded in the Mishnah, which is a record of the rabbinic teachings that were current in the time of Christ, a passage that has become famous about the debate that was taking place within Judaism in the first century, in the decades prior to Jesus Christ's public ministry, among two different schools of rabbis. So there were prominent rabbis who discussed this. There were two different positions that were common among the Pharisees. The one that was most common was that of Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel, according to the Mishnah, 
interpreted Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, as allowing divorce for almost any reason that you could imagine. A man could divorce his wife for spoiling dinner, according to Rabbi Hillel. This is actually recorded in the Mishnah. We're not making this up. This is their own book. Rabbi Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife if he found another woman to be more attractive. So Rabbi Hillel was extremely permissive when it came to the subject of divorce for men. Now, the other position was much more restrictive, and that was the position of Rabbi Shammai. And when Rabbi Shammai looked at Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, he taught that the only grounds that were in Moses' mind when he wrote that chapter would have been sexual immorality. That only sexual immorality was grounds for a man to divorce his wife. Now, what we need to do, of course, is to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and read it. So keep your marker there in Mark chapter 10 and come back to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. As Jesus responds to the question of whether or not it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife, he asks them, what did Moses write? And they referred to the permission that they read in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, as I read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, I want you to read it with this question in mind. Where is the command in these verses? All right? As I read it, look for a command in the text. This is reading it according to its grammar. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, in verse 1, is there any imperative? Is there any command in the grammar of verse 1? When a man takes a wife and marries her, is there a command to marry? No, he's just saying, when this happens. Is there a command to find some indecency in her? No, that's just describing the situation. Is there a command to write her a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house? No, there is not a command. These are just the descriptions of a situation that God knew would arise in Israel. God knew that the people, the men, would divorce their wives. And so he has a commandment here about what is allowable after a divorce has taken place. That after a divorce and then a remarriage and a second divorce the man is not allowed to take his wife back again after she has been married to another man. That's the command. That's the instruction. The rest of it is just setting up the situation. So you can't tell just from these verses alone whether or not divorce is a good thing or a bad thing. You'd have to figure that out from other passages. This passage doesn't say. It just says when it happens, then this other thing is not allowable. And that fits perfectly with what Jesus says 
the proper interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and why we don't use it as a text that gives us permission to divorce our wives. Back in Mark chapter 10, look at what Jesus said. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Because God knew that the people were going to divorce their wives, he gave them a commandment about not being able to take back their wife after she had married someone else and been divorced from him. The command is about taking back a remarried wife. The command is not about divorce. Can we be clear on that? I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says, because of your hardness of heart, he gave you this commandment, the commandment to not take your divorced wife back again after she's been divorced from a second husband. That's the command. And that actually comes up later in the the Bible, in Jeremiah. This becomes important in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. And I think that's part of the reason why God put this commandment here. But there's other reasons why God put this commandment here. You might think, well, what does that commandment have to do with anything? How many, how many times does somebody get divorced twice and go back to the first husband? That doesn't seem like a very relevant command. Couldn't we have something a little bit more universally applicable? Well, we'll get to some of the other reasons why God put that here. But let us agree that he did not put it here in order to approve of divorce. And that's what Jesus is clearly teaching in Mark chapter 10, that we should not use Deuteronomy 24 as permission to divorce. But what do we look to in the Bible to answer the question of whether or not it is lawful for a person to get divorced? What did Moses write? Well, we go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, according to Jesus Christ. This is not me. This is the words of Jesus Christ. And this is a plain explanation of his words. Now, when you go back to Genesis and you find the intention of God in marriage we find out that marriage is not a social contract, but it is God's creation and that it is holy and that it is one man with one woman for life. That's the design for marriage. Now, I really like what one commentator had to say about misusing Deuteronomy 24 to justify divorce. And he said this, you don't learn to fly an airplane by reading the instructions on how to make a crash landing. Being married is like flying an airplane. It takes some skill, it takes some wisdom, and your life depends upon it. And a divorce is like a crash landing. And a passage in the Old Testament that tells you what to do in a certain case, in a certain divorce, a certain crash landing, is not the instruction that we need in order to have successful marriages. And he said this as well, you will not be successful in war if you train by the rules of beating a retreat. A retreat from marriage is not a success in marriage. And so Jesus here is going to redirect the focus of the question from what is permissible, what does God allow, to what does God want. This is the difference between a child who loves the father and a child who doesn't love the father. Are we looking for what God wants or are we looking for what God is going to discipline us for? What can I get away with? How far can I go? What is allowed? If you leave your kids at home and your kids say, what can we get away with? Is that the heart of an obedient child? But if you leave your kids at home and they say, what would dad want us to do? What did mom tell us to do? And they do that. Is that the heart of an obedient child? 
You see, so often people in their relationship with God, it's what can I get away with? How far can I push going against what God wants before he's going to smack me down? That's not the attitude that God wants us to have. He wants us to be running with our whole heart in the direction of what does God want me to do? Jesus has that heart. And he's amazed that other people don't have this heart. Now, let's take a look then at God's original intention, the words of Jesus here. God says, from the beginning of creation, you go back to the beginning for these foundational truths. We had this lesson in our adult Sunday school this morning. The book of Genesis provides such important foundations for being able to understand what it means to be human, what it means to be male and female, what a marriage is, who created marriage, what's God's design for marriage, what is a nation? Where do the nations come from? What are the, the families of the earth, the ethnicities? And where do the languages come from? And why do we wear clothes? And why do we work? And why is work a pain in the neck? That all of these questions are answered in the book of Genesis that have to do with everything that's important in our everyday life. And as the world has rejected God's design for creation, they've also thrown out God's design for male and female. They've also thrown out God's design for marriage. They've also thrown out God's design for understanding what the human race is and how nations are supposed to interact with one another. They've thrown it all out, and they don't have any clue, even about the nature of work or what it means to be a woman. But we have a foundation. We have an objective foundation upon which to answer the most important questions in life. And that's where Jesus takes us back to. He says, from the beginning... Go back to the book of Genesis. God made them male and female. Therefore, in order to be complete, in order to be whole, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast. He will cling to his wife. And this leaving of father and mother in order to cling to the wife shows the immense importance of the marriage relationship. I mean, there's no relationship that is more foundational in our lives than our relationship to our mother in those first years of our life. She holds us in her hand. She carried us in her womb. She feeds us from her breast. She loves us and teaches us. And then the father and all that he does in modeling care and compassion and hard work, instructing and teaching, the relationship between parents and children is such a strong bond. And yet, a man leaves his father and his mother in order to cling to his wife. And they become one flesh. Do you see how significant, how important this relationship is to the very core of our identity as God designed us? That's why Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Do you understand, men, that your wife is your other self, your other half. We don't call them the other half for no reason. It's because you are not complete. You are not whole without your other half. And once God brings that other half into your life and you become united in marriage, that is something that takes place on a profound level. This is not some mere social contract that can be entered into and exited from at will. This is at the very core of what it means to be human who God created and designed us to be. And we do great damage to ourselves and to our spouse when man separates what God has brought together. Notice that Jesus does say it's possible. He says, let not man separate. He doesn't say man can't do it. Man does do it, and it does great harm to man. 
as male and female. Jesus left it at that. That was his public statement. That was his public teaching. What God has joined together, let not man separate. And this blew the disciples' minds. They were like, whoa! We were not expecting the Lord to answer the question that way. I mean, that's very different from what Rabbi Hillel has been teaching. That's even different from what Rabbi Shammai was saying. We thought Shammai was strict. Jesus seems to be even stricter. This is a pretty extreme position, a pretty extreme view on divorce. And that's why later in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. Like, um, did you really mean what you said? And are we understanding the implications of what you said properly? And so Jesus clarifies that. Let's look at the clarification in verses 10 through 12. So we had the question in verses 1 and 2, Jesus' answer in verses 3 through 9, and we're going to be moving on to the further questions in verses 10 through 12. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, if divorce happens and you get remarried, Jesus says that is committing adultery. No ifs, ands, or buts. This is my statement. This is Jesus' statement. This raises further questions for us. Uh, Like, really? That's it? If you're just reading through the Gospel of Mark and you want to know what does Jesus Christ teach on divorce, that's what you got. Well, we do have some other parts of the Bible that talk about this, but I don't want to let those other parts of the Bible that talk about this undermine the strength of what Jesus says here. This is a strident position that Jesus is recorded for us by the Holy Spirit teaching here in the Gospel of Mark. And adultery is no small thing. You know, in our society, adultery is laughed at. Adultery is encouraged. But I want to remind you what God said about adultery. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God is going to judge all sin. But God recognizes how important our marriage identity is, how sacred and holy it is by specifically singling it out among all the different sins that people can commit and giving us this exhortation, this reminder in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. And then also Paul writing to the Thessalonians, a good church, a faithful church, but living in a very sexually immoral culture like we are. And he had to remind those new Christians that the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And what's he talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8? He's talking about sexual purity. He's talking about adultery. If you commit adultery, this is no small sin. It's a sin that's at the very heart of who you are. It's a sin that's at the, the very heart of your spouse. It's a sin that destroys families wrecks the homes of children. God cares about families. He cares about children. He cares about marriages. He cares about you. He doesn't want the destruction of adultery coming into our homes. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. So, 
The question, the answer, and the further questions that arise from it. Now, this raises even further questions for us. And like I said, this is not the only passage in the Bible that's teaching on the subject of divorce, but I wanted to just let this one stand and sink in a little bit before we run to any other verses. This verse has a message for us by itself. It's not the only thing the Bible says on the subject, and so I want to answer a few of those questions that might be in your heart as you try to absorb what Jesus has just taught. Some of these further questions. The first one, are there any exceptions? Jesus has stated categorically that whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Period. End of statement. But, are there any exceptions to what Jesus has just stated? For we do find that in Scripture you can give a general statement, and the general statement is true, and yet there are some exceptions. Now, when we look at the other Gospels recording Jesus' teaching on this subject, we find that Luke only has one verse, whereas Mark has these 12 verses. Luke just inserts one verse about the teaching of the Lord Jesus on the subject, which is basically the same thing as what Jesus says in verses 11 and 12. Luke 16:18 says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on divorce and remarriage according to Luke. Now, that being said, there is Matthew's gospel to consider as well. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, which is a parallel passage to what we have here in Mark chapter 10, we have something very interesting. We have the same teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, except for this key part right here, which we have an exception. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So Matthew, both in chapter 19, verse 9, and also in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches on the subject of divorce, in both cases, Matthew includes this exception clause, except for sexual immorality. So, what is the more full-orbed teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ on the subject of divorce is that there is at least one exception that allows for remarriage after divorce without being guilty of adultery. And that is in the case of sexual immorality. Now, several questions arise from this. One of which is, why is this an exception? Why is this an exception to what Jesus says clearly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the subject? Well, think about this. What was the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament law? Death. Now, what happens to a marriage when someone dies? The marriage is over. You're free to remarry. So if the law of God had been put into effect as it was written, then the adulterer would be put to death. That would mean that the person who had not committed adultery would be free to remarry, right? And so, if God is merciful and spares the life of the person who deserves death, as the adulterer does, but if God doesn't enforce that law but instead shows mercy, well, in showing mercy to the adulterer, he also, by his own nature, is constrained to show mercy to the one sinned against. 
And if he or she would have been freed from this bad marriage to the adulterer if justice had been carried out against him or her, then that person should also be free in God's mercy in sparing the life of the adulterer. You follow me? Also, it could be that the sexual union in marriage, having been violated by adultery, the damage is already done, so to speak, and this allows for a divorce and remarriage without the binding of the marriage because the marriage has already been broken by the act of adultery. That is also another possibility for explaining this exception. Now again, Jesus does not explain the exception. This is me trying to explain the exception from a general knowledge of God's word and using logic and reason. But we don't know for sure why this exception is allowed. We just know that it is because God wrote Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, the Holy Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit wrote Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Now, another question that arises out of the exception clause in Matthew's two verses on divorce is what exactly is in view in this word sexual immorality? Now, in our translation, it comes across as a two-word phrase, sexual immorality, but in the Greek, it's one word from which we get our English word pornography. The word is porneia. And porneia in Greek, it means sexual immorality. It's a broad term to describe sexual immorality. The Bible has a specific term to talk just about adultery. That's moikeia. But Jesus doesn't just say moikeia, which he could have easily said, but instead he says porneia, which is a broader term for sexual immorality. So what exactly is the grounds for divorce? What is included and what is not included in the idea of porneia? Well, I don't want to go into all of the gory details, but I just want you to know that that would be on a case-by-case basis and that you don't necessarily have to commit adultery to be guilty of porneia according to the usage of the term, the normal usage of the term. All right, another question. If the adulterer in the marriage, the one who commits the sexual immorality, if is repentant, is there still grounds for divorce? Say you're married to a believer, they commit adultery, but then they repent, they confess the sin, they show the signs of repentance in their life with the zeal and all of that that you have, marks of true repentance in Paul's writings. Does the person sinned against still have grounds for divorce? Or should we encourage people to keep the marriage together after adultery? Again, these are things that are not clear in such a succinct statement about an exception for divorce. It takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of seeking God's face in each individual situation to know how these principles that are clear enough in Scripture are to be applied in the nitty-gritty details of each individual's marriage. This is why it's so important that the church be filled with God's spirit and filled with wisdom. This is why it's important that you be growing strong in your faith so that you have the wisdom of Solomon to be able to look into situations and to be able to have wisdom from God to know how to uphold the sanctity and honor of marriage while at the same time showing compassion to those who are suffering. That's what the elders of the church are called to do as shepherds on behalf of the congregation. 
This is why it's so important that we have godly, qualified men in the office of eldership because this is the type of thing that elders have to deal with. My husband is involved in immorality. What am I supposed to do about it? And then you have the talk and you figure it out and you use the principles from God's word and you do all things without partiality. How often does partiality enter into these affairs, these matters? Well, I can't say this to this person or I can't take this position because this is going to offend that one and if this person gets offended, well then this and this is going to happen and we'll have all kinds of trouble. And so instead of judging righteously, instead of judging according to the case, we judge according to what's going to happen if I say this or if the church does that. And once that has taken place, we have failed. We have failed God, and we have failed the people that we are called to serve. This is not what the church is. We need men who have proven that they would die for the truth, and that they would die for each person that is in the congregation. Let heaven fall before we do an injustice. Let our church come to an end. Our building, our finances, our budget, let it all be wrecked before we would treat anyone in the congregation unfairly in such a matter. Men who are elders and who have been elders, you will be judged by God according to how you deal with situations like this. And you who are not elders, who do not bear this responsibility, the scripture commands you to hold them in high regard and high esteem for the labor that they do. You think this is fun? You think anybody wants to deal with these types of situations? Does he want everyone saying, well, they botched that one? Yeah, it's very easy to be the armchair quarterback and tell everyone what they're doing wrong. And we do need people to tell us when we're doing wrong. Because men will make mistakes and men will be partial. And they need people from outside to come in and give them perspective and say, I think you're showing partiality. I think you're allowing other considerations to cloud your vision here. And we must be open to that censure and that rebuke. And if God sends someone to the church elders and says, I don't think you handled this right, and we blow them off, It's like spitting on the Holy Spirit and sending him away. There's another key question that comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is dealing with matters of marriage and singleness and divorce and and all of that. And one of the things that Paul wants to answer for the Corinthians is, what do you do in the case of a believer who's married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever says, I don't know you anymore. I don't understand you anymore. Since you've become a Christian, God's the most important thing in your life and I'm second fiddle and I'm tired of that and I want to be rid of this marriage and I want to go find somebody who thinks like I do. If somebody divorces you because you've become a Christian, what do you do? Well, Jesus had not talked to that. He hadn't publicly answered that question. And so Paul, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, he gives an opinion that is trustworthy because God has given it to us in Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit led Paul to answer this question for our benefit. And you can read the whole chapter there in 1 Corinthians 7, but for time's sake, I'm just going to point out what he says in verse 15, which is the key verse here. He says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. He says, If you're married and the unbeliever wants a divorce, that's basically what separate here means, you have to let it go. There's nothing you can do. 
Now, maybe in some cases there would be legal recourse in their society, but in Roman law, if somebody wanted a divorce, they just left and there was really nothing you could do about it. And so in that case, there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can't go to war. You can't tie them up and make them stay in your house. You've got to let them go. And the Bible says you're not enslaved in that case. And what does that mean? Specifically, does that mean that you are allowed to remarry? And what you see in Jesus' teaching, as well as what was recorded in Deuteronomy, and what is the general teaching of Scripture, is that remarriage is assumed. And this is what normally happens. If somebody gets divorced, they might stay single for a little while, but sooner or later, they tend to get remarried. That's what's normal. And so the Bible assumes that after a divorce, people are going to get remarried. And so to say that the brother or sister is not enslaved, if it means anything, it has to mean that they are allowed to get remarried. If you didn't want to allow remarriage, you would just say that. You'd say, well, if they leave, you're stuck. You've got to stay single. That would be enslaved to a marriage where the partner has abandoned you. But when he says you're not enslaved, what does that mean? It means you are free to remarry. What's the opposite of being enslaved? Being free. Free to do what? Free to get remarried. That's obviously what Paul is saying, although, uh, sadly, uh, not everybody sees that. And I talked with good pastors whom I respect who don't see that here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. But I wish they would, because it seems pretty obvious to me. <clears throat> now, this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ back in Mark, even with these exceptions, with the exception that we had in Matthew, with the exception that we have here in 1 Corinthians 7.15, the exceptions are valid, but they should not be used to weaken the emphasis of Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 10 or in Luke chapter 16. Because even in Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus has done what he says here in Matthew 19 verse 9, do you know what the disciples say in response? The disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Are you telling us, Jesus, that we cannot divorce our wife no matter how much she disrespects me, no matter how ungrateful she is, no matter how much she complains, no matter how hostile she is towards me, I'm living in the corner of my roof in my little man cave and, and she's got the whole house because I'm, I'm running away from her. Who wants to sign up for that? I mean, that's risky. Yeah, you're marrying a young lady and she's sweet and kind and you love spending time with her, but you don't know what she's going to be like in 10 years. And, you know, the illustration works perfectly fine the opposite way as well, but we're talking about the disciples' response here, right? If they were female disciples, they might have, you know, put it a little different way, but still have the same problem, right? Who wants to risk this? Marrying someone that you're stuck with, no matter what they do. That's risky. But Jesus didn't soften it. You know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 11? He says... Only some people are given the gift of celibacy. Now, if, if you can live life without having that need in your life for another half, then that's great. God made you a little bit differently than he made everyone else. But for most of us, we're not complete without marriage, and so the Bible assumes remarriage. And so that brings up another question, right? If the Bible assumes remarriage, what about this one? Can you divorce as long as you don't remarry? 
Because Jesus says, if you divorce a woman and then marry another, that's committing adultery. Because the piece of paper doesn't really change the fact that you are one flesh with this other person, that you've been united to them in the sight of God. An ontological union cannot be broken by some piece of paper. So when you go and you marry someone else, that is committing adultery. But what if you don't remarry? What if you divorce and just stay single? Is that sin? Is that wrong? Well, it's certainly not as bad as adultery, but it's also not good. Maybe it's the lesser of two evils. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, I think, is instructive in this regard. This is the other place in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus addresses the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And he says this, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, there's the exception again, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So yeah, you divorce and you stay single, good on you. But what about the other person? Right? We always have to ask, what about the other person? You've deprived them of a spouse, and if they're going to act according to their nature, the way that God has made them, they're going to get remarried. And if you divorce them unjustly, you're making them commit adultery when they get remarried. So this is not an ideal solution either, just divorce and stay single. I mean, if you can do that, good for you, but what about the other person, right? So maybe it's the lesser of two evils, but it's still not what Jesus instructs us to do. And this brings up a very important question. Our second marriage is valid. If someone divorces and it's not according to one of the two exceptions, it's not because the other person was sexually immoral, it's not because an unbeliever left them, but you just had irreconcilable differences, right? That's the phrase that's used for divorce these days, irreconcilable differences. You've got a divorce that is not biblically justified, and then you get remarried, which Jesus says is an act of adultery, does that mean that that marriage is not valid? That's an important question. And the Bible actually answers that question. I'm amazed at how the Bible answers our questions in such an economy of words if we just set our hearts to listen. If we just set our hearts to hear what Jesus says. And this is really what Deuteronomy chapter 24 was given for. Deuteronomy 24 answers the question of whether or not a second marriage is valid. Jesus said, If a man marries, but the woman finds no favor in his sight, and he sends her away because of some indecency, this is what Moses wrote, he sends, gives her a certificate of divorce, and she departs from his house, then if she goes and marries another man, doesn't say seems to marry, or lives in an adulterous relationship with another man. It says, marries another man. So God recognizes the second marriage. And if that second marriage is then divorced, God recognizes the first marriage, he recognizes the divorce, he recognizes the second marriage, he recognizes the second divorce, that tells us that remarriages are real marriages. And so, if you are in a second marriage... Your marriage is real. You're not living in a continuous state of adultery. That second marriage now stands, and you should live in that second marriage. You don't need to divorce your second husband and try to get back with your first husband. God says, nope, first marriage is done. You're in a new marriage. Make that marriage work. That's God's will for a second marriage. Two more questions. What about abuse? 
We've talked about sexual immorality. We've talked about abandonment. But, you know, there's a lot of other really bad situations in marriage besides just those two. Now, abuse is kind of a tricky term because, you know, just looking at someone weird these days is called abuse. But what we're talking about when I say, what about abuse, I'm talking about severe physical abuse. Now, mental abuse can also be severe. You can just live with someone who delights in some kind of mental torture and games. But it's not the same thing as physical abuse. So really what I'm talking about here is, what about extreme physical abuse? Well, in the case of extreme abuse, I would counsel separation until the threat can be neutralized. In an ideal society, if a man beats his wife, or vice versa, he should be beaten until he stops. And he'll learn real quick. I am an advocate for prisoner reform. I think our prison system needs a lot of reform. I think we need to go back to corporal punishment. Instead of taking a man out of his home for years, you beat him, you send him back home, and he will learn very quickly not to lay a hand on her. This was the way the Old Testament dealt with it. There was no prison system in the books of Moses. You find him, you beat him, you send him back to work. You send him back home. Do better. In some cases, capital punishment. Problem solved. She's free to remarry. You take a man and you put him in jail for 20 years and the wife is home and what's she supposed to do? She was made for marriage. And now she's suffering as a woman who's bound in a relationship with a man who's not there. Now in cases of less extreme abuse, I think 1 Peter chapter 3 is instructive. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. I encourage you to write it down, read it especially wives, this is instruction to God, from God to you. And God knows there are bad husbands. God knows there are husbands who do not obey the word. God knows there are husbands who like to make you afraid, like to intimidate women. This is what God says to women who have husbands who do not obey the word and who like to intimidate their wives. Even if some do not obey the word, well, let me read it for you. 1 Peter chapter 3 since I set it up that way. Let's hear what God says. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle spirit, a quiet spirit, is a spirit that's not troubled. Your husband cannot trouble you. You have peace that passes understanding because your faith and hope are in God. You have the power of the martyrs who suffered under severe persecution and suffered the extreme penalty unjustly. And they did so without fear, with courage and confidence. And you can bear up under a bad husband And put your trust in God, and he will take care of you. And it goes on. It says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, 
as Sarah obeyed Abraham, even when he was a bonehead, even when he put her life in jeopardy because of his lack of faith in God, she called him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do not fear him. Do not fear his threats. Do not fear how he can ruin your life financially with his gambling, with his drug abuse, with his drug addiction. Do not be afraid for yourself or for your children, but trust in God. That doesn't mean you don't do anything. It doesn't mean you don't seek help. It doesn't mean you don't avail yourself of all that God has given you in the church and in the community with the law enforcement, but you do what is right and you trust God. Do what is right and do not be frightened. The last question that I want to throw out here, is this a church discipline issue? As I said, it takes a lot of spirit-given wisdom to be able to sort through the he said and the she said of all that goes on behind closed doors and the lives of a married couple. And so I think there should be a lot of caution exercised before we are certain that we should exercise church discipline in the case of divorce. We must be certain that the believer, the professed believer, who is pursuing divorce is doing so without grounds, and in rebellion to God before we would take this final step of church discipline. I think all sin is a church discipline issue. But I advise much caution in dealing with a divorce situation. Now, for anyone who feels trapped in a loveless marriage, there is hope. You do what God commands and you put your trust in God, and you might be surprised what God does. You do what God commands, and you put your trust in God, and you might be surprised what God is able to do through one person out of the two who chooses to do that. If you choose to do what God tells you to do in your marriage, God will work. I'm not making any promises about his salvation. I'm not making any promises about her repentance. I'm just saying God is alive and God honors the faith of those who put their trust in him. Pursue holiness above your happiness and God will make you blessed. If you have questions about the subject of divorce and remarriage that I have not addressed or you'd like further clarification on anything that I've said today, then my door is open. Uh, My phone is always at my side. I love to meet. I love to talk. I love to listen. And hopefully those of you that have come to me for counseling on any issue have found that I am quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and that I am reasonable and that I'm a good listener. That's what a pastor is supposed to be. That's what I strive for. And we are all here for each other. Not just me, but the the phone of everyone in this congregation is available for you. The ear of every brother and sister is yours. As Christ laid down his life for us, we lay down our lives for one another. 
and we will do whatever is in our power to help you and bless you in whatever situation you might find yourself in. We will not use any situation that you are in to hurt you. We will always seek what is good for you and for those that belong to you. Let us pray. Father, we have a challenging word to contend with from the lips of Jesus Christ today. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. And Lord, give us a softness of heart that is responsive to what Jesus has to say to us. For he is not dead, but he is alive and he is here and he is in our presence, in our hearts, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, guide us into all of the truth. Build us up in the most holy faith. Give us wisdom in all things so that we might do your will and thereby glorify you as we serve your creation. The men, women, and children who are created in the image and likeness of God who are precious in your sight. Lord God, give us skill to be able to handle each situation, to deal personally with each individual for our good and for your glory. Amen.